Welcome to Monsters Among Us. I am your guide, Derek Hayes. Greetings, ghosts, goblins, and ghouls. And welcome to another installment of your favorite paranormal podcast. I have a spine-tingling episode, locked and loaded. Stuffed full of paranormal tales spanning from zombie birds to haunted dolls. But before we get into all that... Let's kick this evening off with a spooky story out of the state of Kansas. The following is Sarah's entry. Hi, so my name is Sarah. My next story that I would like to share is actually about a ghost train. I never even heard of ghost train until this happened. I was probably 15 maybe 16, and I was at a friend's house, and she lived in the very tiny town that had like four houses, but in the country, basically, and there's a train going through her backyard. The tracks from the house, maybe 50 to 100 feet, very, very close. And so we heard trains all the time, it was very loud, nothing new. We were in her house, in her bedroom, and we were playing a card game of some sort, And me and her and her little brother heard the weirdest sounding train that we had ever heard. It didn't sound like a normal train horn that you hear. It sounded very old timey, like a steam train with tons of steam billowing out. And the way that the tracks sounded, you know, it didn't sound like a typical modern day train. It just sounded very weird. And the best way that I know to explain it is like when you see him, on movies, the really old, slow-moving, but powerful steam trains. That's what it sounded like, but it was just very loud and very echoey. So we kind of just freaked out and we ran out into the living room where her parents and some other people were, and we all ran outside. Well, you could still hear the sound of the train, the you know, sound but there weren't any more whistles or horns or whatever you would call it. It was just sort of that track sound. And there's trees on either side of the tracks and there's wind blowing away, pushing away, like a train would be pushing away from the wind blowing against the trees. But there's no train. We can't see anything. You can hear it. It sounds very echoey and it sounds very old and very different than a normal train. And you can see the wind pushing against the trees away from the tracks as if there was a train 
driving by, but there was nothing. And it just sent shivers down my body. And my friend and her whole family, you know, we all just kind of stood there in awe. And this just happened to be a few weeks after I was sort of gawking at my friend for telling me her sister used to hear horse and carts, you know, going down the train and different things. And I thought they were just making it up. But after I heard that, I kind of wondered if maybe they weren't telling the truth. But I always thought that was a very unique experience because I thought ghosts had to be human entities or demon entities or, you know, whatever kind of person type entity. But this was a train and it was so unique and weird. And to this day, people think I'm crazy when I tell the story, but it was very real. And I've never experienced anything like that again. And that was in Missouri, also where I grew up. So... I just thought I'd share that story with you also. I listen to your show and I love it and I hope that you find these stories to be just as unique and interesting as me. Thank you, Sarah. Your description of older train whistles got my gears going. So I did a little digging to see how train whistles have changed over the years. For instance, the following is the standard American train whistle from the 1840s and 50s. Now I've turned all these samples down considerably to save a few eardrums. But if you're wearing headphones, quick heads up. Now this is the Crosby whistle from the 1870s and 80s. And finally, this is the Hancock air whistle, in use from the 1930s all the way up into the 90s. So I'd say it's safe to assume that Sarah would know the difference between a modern whistle and an older one. It seems they're quite distinguishable, but without other leads to follow. I started digging around for other spooky train stories from the Sunflower State. And boy, was I not disappointed. The following clip about a hero and his ghostly return. The story of the ghostly train of Brit Craft. On August 29, 1882, this story ran in the Atchison Daily Globe, featuring a train engineer with an eerie tale, while on a recent run late at night, he saw a phantom engine coming around a curve. He also saw an engineer looking out the window of that train. It was a man he knew well, Brit Kraft. But the problem with what that engineer saw, Britt Kraft was dead, killed a few weeks earlier, and buried in this Atchison Cemetery. But on his grave marker, a clue to explain what his friends saw, the fading message here, honor to the dead who died to save others. Running his train on that summer night, Britt Kraft came around a bend to see the bridge he was about to cross on fire. While too late to stop the entire train, he brought the engine to a stop on the burning bridge, knowing he wouldn't survive the fire, but that his passengers would escape. Kraft became a hero, a legend, who may have wanted one more ride. His fellow engineer who saw that phantom had no doubt, saying, I have seen the ghost 
of Brit Craft's engine. Now back clip comes courtesy of KMBC, ABC News 9, out of Kansas City. And I think it's important to mention that many railroad legends like this persist across the country. But a majority of these tales take place on active railways. In fact, on previous episodes, we discussed tragic deaths at the Pope Lick train trestle in Kentucky. But you know, back in 2010, tragedy struck another group of ghost hunters, this time in Iredell County, North Carolina. WXII, NBC News 12, has more details. Back in 1891, a train derailed, plunging some 65 feet, killing 20 to 30 people. Now, it is believed that every year the spirits of those who died return to this crash, and that brings about ghost hunters, and that was the case this morning. It's just something that people come to watch and see if they see anything. Early Friday morning, this train moving fast from high above this bridge in Iredell County kills a man. Investigators say the man was on the train trestle with a group of ghost hunters. It's a sort of a ghost train. It's an old story that goes that apparently back many years ago in 1891 there was a train wreck. The screeching brakes quickly turned into crushing metal and screams from passengers. According to the folktale, 50 years later, a woman walking near the bridge saw and heard the same train derail. And a lot of people come out at the anniversary of that every year to watch and see if they can see the ghost train at around 3 o'clock in the morning. And this year was no exception. A group of 10 to 12 came to this bridge in hopes of seeing and hearing the ghost train. But they were met by a real train coming down this track. You have to remember, it was pitch black out here. With nowhere to go, the only option was down the 75-foot bridge. The train hit and killed 29-year-old Christopher Kaiser. A woman injured herself after falling off the embankment. It's unclear why they did not see the lights from the train or hear it. But what is clear, after years of ghost hunting near the bridge... This is the first fatality or injury we've had. Now, investigators admit they, too, have witnessed odd things around this anniversary. The crossing lights will flash and the gate goes up and down, they say. But most people never go on the train trestle to watch that ghost train. And they hope, Wanda, that no one ever will go up there again. Now, this sort of thing happens more often than it should. So please be careful out there. Thanks again, Sarah, for sharing your tale. Now our next entry takes us to the state of New York, where Brian has an eerie experience he would like to share with us. Hey Derek, it's Brian from Long Island, New York. So this was around maybe 1994 or something like that. I was about 15 years old and pretty normal evening as far as weather. It was very clear, clear night. Unremarkable as far as I can recall. Just just a normal week night had school in the morning and I went to sleep right around I don't know I think it was uh two o'clock two thirty three o'clock I started hearing children outside but not just like one child you know or two children it, it, it sounded like my neighbor started a daycare center overnight at night like and I know my neighbor has kids they're a little bit younger than me, probably around the right age. But this was 3 o'clock in the morning, and they would have had to been having a birthday party at, you know, 3.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. You know, I started hearing it around 2.30, and I'm just laying in bed, and I don't know where, when I woke up. So I'm, I'm going to say it was anywhere between 2.30 and 3 o'clock. 
just to give an estimate. But I'm listening to it, and I, you know, at first you don't think nothing of it. It's just kids playing outside your house. Like you're like, okay, you know, there's kids. You know, it's normal. And then you know you're sleeping, so your subconscious mind, or, or I'm starting to become conscious, and I'm, I'm going, wait a second, isn't it? It's night. It's still nighttime, right? You know, and that's a lot of kids, and it sounds like they're all like playing different games and you hear songs and they're kind of like, you know, ringing around a rosy and stuff like that. So at this point I'm like, okay, it's late. Obviously tell it's dark. Cause you know, um, I'm, I can't see the window from my bed, but I realize that there's no light coming ambient light coming in from outside. At that point, that's when it clicked. I'm like, okay, this is not normal. I pop up out of bed. I pull the blinds. I look out the window as soon as I look out the window, all I see is a black, something, it, it's small, it's black, and it's the fastest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. It just, it, and, and I don't know, I didn't see where it really was or if it, it began. I just, I looked to where I heard the children, and I just see a small black shadow, and it shoots like it's almost like it knew that I was looking or whatever it shoots across the road and there's a corner there I live in a residential suburban area on Long Island so there's a lot of houses and stuff like that so it just kind of shoots across the road and does this quick little turn and then down the side street there and just gone and I mean this startled me so much as a 15 year old or a 14 year old like i i went into my mother's room and was like wake up like what just happened and you know they were like you know okay calm down you know it, there was an ominous feeling it did feel like whatever it was was dark it had foul intention i, I did not feel comfortable uh, and, and t to mention even when i heard the children it was almost like a feeling of dread. So, yeah, that's my story. You're doing a good job. Keep up the good work. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thank you, Brian. You know, the mention of a dark entity and ghostly children on Long Island instantly makes me think of the infamous Amityville haunting, or the haunting of high hopes, as it's sometimes referred to. Now, I'm sure almost everyone listening has at least heard of the Amityville murders or the subsequent haunting, later the allegations of falsifying claims. Well, the story is much too heavy to unpack here today, but we'll touch upon that one again at some point. Now, I'm not exactly sure where on Long Island Brian is located, so chances are good that his experience and those of 108 Ocean Avenue being connected are slim to non-existent but the case was far too pivotal not to at least mention. Thanks again, Brian. Sounds like you have yourself some sort of shadow entity. Hopefully, your experience was a one-time event. Attention all monster shoppers. I have a few announcements that could really amplify your holiday shopping experience. Sarah and I recently assembled some grab bags from the old Cryptic Crate backstock. Hats, books, toys, totes, all sorts of goodies. Now each box is only $20, 
and values somewhere around 40 bucks. And that's not all. If you act now, we also have a brand new mirrored men design from talented collaborator Cryptid Zoo. Now these are the same designs that are found on the pre-order hoodies. So if you missed out on those, the t-shirt is the next best thing. But wait, there's more. We also have a little sale running on some of our summer items. The Bigfoot Ringer Tee and the Goonies-inspired drawstring backpacks. Both designed by amazing artist and friend of the show, Erie Eric. Both are marked down until the 15th of December. And both make amazing gifts for the MAU fan in your life. And don't forget that every purchase helps keep the lights on here in the studio. Oh, and if you're one of those that's wondering, well, I don't know what size to get, or I'm not sure which one they would like, I'm now happy to announce we have gift certificates available on the website. So for all that, visit Monsters Among Us podcast forward slash shop and get your gear today. Well, back to the action and back to the strangeness. This next one is a bit on the lighter side, which is pretty good because there are some stories coming down the pike that will make your skin crawl. But first, Steve, out of Canada, has a story for us about strangers in perfect timing. Hey Derek, this is Steve from Saskatchewan again. This one is a bit of an odd one. Maybe it was nothing, but it just seems so bizarre to me that I thought I'd call it in. So uh, about six or seven years ago, I used to be a uh, manager for a construction company. And my job was to basically drive back and forth, picking up supplies from like Home Depot or Lowe's or Rona or whatever, get it, and bring the supplies back to my construction crews on site. One of the days I was working, I left one of the stores with a can of paint and stupidly I put the can of paint on my passenger seat as I was driving. So I drove to the site and, and on the way to the site, I went through a back alley that had a lot of deep ditches and sort of bad undulating sort of road work going on. So it was like bumpy and stuff like that. And as I'm driving, I go over one bump and the can of paint gets knocked off the seat and literally explodes in the front seat of my truck. It's not my truck. It's, it's my work truck. So it's my boss's truck. And I'm sitting there with a front seat full of paint and I have nothing to clean it up. And I'm jump out of the truck. I get down on all fours. I'm scooping the paint out with my forearms, trying to get all the paint out. And out of nowhere, a van pulls up. A man gets out of opens the van up, gives me a brand new bag of rags, like unopened, with an unopened thing of turpentine, and says, have a good day, and says, see you later. And from that day forward, I've always thought, did I just burn one of my three wishes? I tell the story to other people, and everybody's like, that is so bizarre. But the weird thing is, maybe two months later, me and the person that I was working for were out in the middle of nowhere. We're sitting in a farmer's field, probably 40 kilometers from the nearest town. And we had a electrical tester. We needed to test the plugs in a house that we were working on out there, but we didn't, weren't actually starting work that day, so we hadn't brought all our equipment. And while we were sitting out there, I was like, like we need it. We need to use the electrical tester. I, I pull it, pull it up, and I look at the back of the electrical tester, and I can't get to the battery because you need a, one of those little mini screwdrivers. And I said, oh, I wish we would have brought a mini screwdriver. And no freaking word of a lie, I looked to the left of me, 
and there's a mini screwdriver sitting on the seat. Neither of us used mini screwdrivers ever. It was so strange. Like, I, I have no other way to understand it. And, you know, I can't explain it. Maybe it was nothing. But to me, it, it sure felt like it was something out of this world, really. But I just thought I'd share it with you. Maybe you can't. Maybe you can't use it. Have a good day. See ya. Thanks, Steve. That is a weird one. You know, I don't recall anything strange like that happening to me, but from another perspective, I could see others viewing similar things I've done to be equally as strange. I've stopped on more than one occasion to help fellow motorists with anything from a push out of the snow to a first aid kit and bandages. But like Steve Stranger, you make tracks the second everything is under control. It's just easier that way. And I'm sure that leaves quite a strange impression with those left wondering what happened. But just in case, Steve, guard those last two wishes closely. And thanks again for the entry. Now our next entry comes to us from Natalie from Parts Unknown. Hi Derek, my name is Natalie. I just wanted to call in with a weird experience that happened to me and a friend driving home from Las Vegas. It was probably around 2008 and it was about nine at night during the winter. It was one of those really cold desert nights and we saw a weird light flying in the sky and it was at a level where it wasn't a helicopter but it was also too low to be a plane and it was really really windy out like the wind was blowing my little car around the road so if something was flying that low it was weird for it to have been as steady as this light was and it seemed like this light kept coming closer to us and at one point we joked like oh yeah maybe it's a ufo and it seemed like as soon as we did that it like crossed the freeway in front of us and started pacing the car. And it wasn't close enough for us to see anything except for the little light, but we were like a little freaked out. We had to stop and get gas, and the next stop was the little town Baker. Most people probably know it if you've driven the 15 freeway. So we stopped there, and it is freezing out. Like with the wind chill, it was easily under 30 degrees. And there were just singular people meandering around. And as we pull into the gas station, we see the light. It flies over to this hill, and in the background of the hill, it seems to just go down. Like, it, as it touches down to the hill, the light just dimmed, and then it disappeared. So we thought that that was really weird, too, that the light would dim before. Like, if a craft was landing, lights don't normally dim. They normally turn on. So anyways, we pull into the gas station. We get out. And we see those signs for alien fresh jerky, which is something that they have there. And there's no cars in the gas station. And we look across the street and the other gas station is covered in ravens. We're like, well, that's also really creepy. So we go in and I'm trying to like just add humor or something because we're a little freaked out. So I asked the gas station attendant like, oh, have you tried the alien fresh jerky? And he was the only person in the entire store. And I said, oh, have you tried the alien fresh jerky? And he said, uh, yeah. And then I said, oh, how is it? And he like suddenly his face went blank and he was just like, I don't know. I don't know. 
I don't know. And I was like, oh, no, it's okay. Don't worry about it. And then some random man with a gallon of milk, like, just appeared in the store and walked out the back door. So we just leave. And as we're driving out, there's just random people walking around. It is freezing outside. So it was a really weird experience. I looked it up later. And it seems like there might be some sort of underground base there or something, like something that goes out to California City is what I was seeing. But didn't really see anything else like that. So I was just wondering if you'd heard of any lights in the Baker area or if there's any other people with stories like that. It was so weird and we still get freaked out, my friend and I thinking about it to this day. So yeah, that's my story. Thanks for the podcast. I love it. I just discovered it a couple weeks ago and have been binging it and it is so great. And I'm so happy that people are sharing their stories and you're giving us this platform. Thanks. Thanks, Natalie. As a matter of fact, that portion of the country is littered with military bases and installments. Some public knowledge, some merely rumored to exist. Well, of those top-secret military bases, one stands out above the others. And it's not the one you're thinking of. Some 130 miles northeast of Baker, Nevada, the location of Natalie's experience, lies a vast military installation larger than the state of Rhode Island the Dugway Proving Grounds, or as UFO researchers are claiming, Area 52. Officially designated as the Dugway Proving Ground, this military facility covers an astounding 1,250 square miles of the Great Salt Lake Desert. Dugway Proving Grounds is located in the West Desert of Utah. It's completely surrounded by mountains on three sides. If you're familiar with the West deserts of Utah, you know that there's just huge, vast areas out there where nobody and nothing is around. Dugway is shrouded in mystery and lots of mishaps. I suggest that nobody trespasses on this property. You will have Blackhawk helicopters on you in no time. Some of the things that we've seen out there are um, convoys of black suburbans or military vehicles that just kind of disappear like they're going underground or something like that. You have areas that are clearly marked bombing range on signage, and yet you look out there and you don't see any kind of craters or evidence of bombing. Instead, there's fence sticking out of the ground, buildings. What does that tell you? There's something underneath, some kind of huge facility or type of underground base. And like its much smaller yet more popular brother base, Area 51, Area 52 is set up for all sorts of strangeness, including research and development, biological warfare, and according to some, reverse engineering of recovered alien spacecraft. Dugway has a history which continues to this day of interesting UFO sightings. This doesn't include simply craft, but also things like uh, orangish red orbs, for example. Bizarre things. There's certainly nothing that officially the United States government has acknowledged, and yet enough people are seeing them that we really have to ask ourselves, what are these things, and why are they there? Whatever was at Area 51 with regard to the alien bodies has perhaps moved uh, to Area 52. I've seen craft flying around at Dugway, doing maneuvers that I know conventional craft can't do. And so it's, it's either experimental craft or it's not ours. I've personally witnessed 
unconventional craft being escorted by Blackhawk helicopters. I've heard of other stories that, that have come my way where UFOs have been seen in the area and these type of craft cannot be all military. There's no way that the military can account for all the sightings that happen out there. Now those clips come courtesy of Quest TV and a link to a short documentary on the base can be found in tonight's show notes. So I'll tell you what, Natalie. A simple search on YouTube gives you dozens of pieces of video evidence almost identical to what you've reported seeing. And 130 miles is next to nothing for some of the craft they're knowingly working with out there. So seeing something strange in the night sky of eastern Nevada is certainly no surprise to me. Oh, and as for those secret tunnels mentioned, I've seen many claims by researchers stating that an underground tunnel system has connected a lot of these bases together. And according to a lot of these same researchers, a majority of these bases, places like Dugway, are nearly located completely under the surface of the rocky desert terrain. So thanks again, Natalie, for sharing your entry. Now, if you have a story you would like to hear on the show, simply call the hotline at 1-888-608-NIGHT. That's 1-888-608-6444. And don't forget, I'm still looking for stories from people that have experiences while working on, near, or with water. And speaking of water, our next entry takes us to the eastern seaboard, where Mike in Massachusetts is a gruesome experience to share. Hey Derek, this is Mike from Massachusetts. I have a story from my childhood. So this was back in, I think it was the summer of 1999. I know it was, you know, young. So me and my childhood friend, uh, we were, you know, exploring around our hometown. And I don't exactly know where we were in my town, but I know we were, uh, we encountered a large black German shepherd. And this dog was mean and it just came right at us, you know, attacked both of us actually. And it wasn't until a man from the neighborhood actually came out with a baseball bat and he started swinging it at the dog that it finally, it finally let us go and it ran off into the woods. Now I suffered bite marks, scratches, and uh, my friend actually was a lot less lucky than I was. He actually lost his eyesight in his left eye. The weirdest thing about this whole experience was, you know, there was the owner of the dog never came forward. Nobody ever claimed ownership of the dog. And then when animal control went to look for this dog, they couldn't find it anywhere. And what's really crazy and weird about the story is many years later, I was watching the uh, Bridgewater Triangle documentary and I came across this story. It was the Black Dog of Abington. And essentially, uh, the way this story goes is back in uh, April 30th of 1976, there was a firefighter in my town, uh, Philip Kane. He was woken up by his daughter and in a panic, she told him that there was a large black dog out in the backyard uh, that was actually attacking her horses. And when he went outside with his pistol, he saw this large black dog eating the horses and uh, he ended up firing a shot at it and it ran off into the woods. So obviously the police were alerted. And uh, a day or two later, there was an officer, Frank Curran. He actually found the dog walking along a set of train tracks and he drew his pistol and fired at this dog, striking it several times to no effect. The dog just kind of looked at him and then wandered off uh, into the woods. And then for several days uh, after that, there were sightings of this black dog. But eventually, after about a week, um, nobody saw it ever after that. So just wanted to share that story. It was uh, a little bit of a traumatic experience, but figured it was relevant to maybe hometown legends or something. 
So uh, enjoy your show and uh, have a great day. Thanks, Mike. Funny. I've seen that film several times and I don't recall that story. But now it's seared into my brain. The Black Dog of Abington is a stellar handle, I might add, as well. I think half of a great legend is all in the name. But unsurprisingly, I was unable to find much info on this flap. I've attached a portion of a newspaper article discussing the canine in tonight's show notes. But outside of that, I wasn't able to find much. I'll have to go back and watch that documentary again. This time, keeping an eye out for the possible paranormal pooch. So thanks again, Mike. And out of curiosity, I wonder how far Mike lives from the town of Abington. Asking for obvious reasons. And Mike mentioned the hometown legend finale, so don't forget to get those calls in as well. That number again is one 608 night And before we dive headfirst into our next web of intrigue, don't forget to follow the show on your social media platform of choice. Our admin game is strong, so you'll have a great time, I promise. Now our next yarn is delivered via Josie in the land of Lincoln. Hi, Derek. This is Josie. I'm from Northern Illinois. I've submitted a couple stories so far, but this one has just kind of really been sitting on my mind. I'm sorry if the audio is not as good as it should be. I am driving right now from work site to work site. So this happened back in January of this year. I had received a notice that on my Facebook feed that there's a soldier who had served in the Vietnam War that had no family. He had passed away in December, and they had waited and tried contacting his family for over a month before they finally laid him to rest. They had a lot of the veterans come and help support for him, but they were just asking the public to come and, you know, say their respects to him. I come from a long line of military family. Currently, my nephew is serving in the United States Army. My grandfather served. My uncles have served. So I felt it was my civic duty to go and give this man the respect that he deserved. So I had made it a point to rearrange my work schedule so that I would be able to drive the hour and a half to his funeral site, which happened to be like right down the street from one of my work sites, about 35 minutes or so. So I, I went there, um, and it was it was very sad because he did not have any family that came to claim him. I'm sorry. So I, I went there. I, I brought him flowers. I prayed for him, and I told him that he wasn't alone and that, you know, it, it was okay to go. I, I said a prayer, and I left. I felt a little bit better once leaving. It was almost like there was a lightness to me. And then things just started getting a little bit weird. The days following attending his funeral, I just felt a presence around me, like somebody was there and watching me and just kind of standing there in the background. Um, I've always felt this way. I kind of have the sensitivity where I can kind of feel the energy of places or people. But it just started getting really weird. I was in the shower, and... I have a big closet tub, so we have we have a shower curtain that goes around the whole tub, plus another shower curtain that kind of blocks any moisture from getting out of there. And the shower curtain opened up. No big deal. Thought maybe it was the dog peeking his head in to check on me. I was wrong. It was not. The bathroom door was still closed, but the shower curtain had opened. 
So I closed the shower curtain and I went about my business, no worries, and it opened again. So at that point, I just kind of said, hey, you know, I'm trying to take a shower, please just leave me alone. And I didn't notice anything later on. A few days after that had happened, I was getting into bed. Everybody was, all my boys are kind of late nighters, so I have to get up early to start work commutes. So I was in bed early, and when I climbed into bed, and I kind of put my legs under my, my blanket and kind of wrap them around myself. I don't like my legs exposed, so I had it kind of wrapped around. And as I was doing that, I felt something in my blanket. It was almost like my husband was laying next to me and I had brushed my leg against his. It was very unnerving to the point where I jumped up out of bed and threw the covers back just to make sure there was nothing there. And there wasn't. There was nothing there. So, again, I just kind of was like, oh, okay, it's time to leave me alone. i got to go to bed now. <laughs> A few days after that, so um, this is, we're getting into the month of February. We, my son has some of his toys in my bedroom, and one of them is a motion-activated toy that it's a Five Nights at Freddy's thing, big, big thing among kids right now. But Fox will jump scare and go, the music, it's almost like a music box will start playing, and then it goes, ah! So, me and my husband were in the game room, and we heard one of our son's toys, um, which is a motion sensor toy, go off. I go and inspect it. The toy is actually facing the wall, so the sensor is blocked, so there's no reason why it should have gone off. So I didn't think anything of it. It's an electronic thing. It's just malfunction sometimes. I turn it off. I walk away. I go back in there into the game room, and all of a sudden we hear the toy go off again. So this point, me and my husband look at each other. I tell him I just turned it off. There's no reason why I should be going off. And he looked at me and said, this is what I'm talking about. And I'm like, what do you mean? What are you talking about? He said, ever since you went to that funeral, little things have been happening. At this point, I don't know what came over me, but I looked into the bedroom where the toy was sitting. I went to the bedroom and looked where the toy was sitting, and I looked back at my husband, and I started laughing. I have no reasoning why I was laughing, but I was laughing, and... Me and my son were on planning a trip to go visit my nephew for one of his graduations. I think it was his turning green where he got his beret. And so as I'm laughing, I said, oh, well, you will have a fun time with him while we're gone. And like I said, I don't know what came over me, why I laughed, why I said that. But I just was like, I don't know why I said that. Yeah, I don't know what's going on. So the toy was going off. I've been hearing a lot of weird sounds, like banging. The dog will actually get up and go and investigate, and he doesn't really know what's going on. Things falling off of the shelving. The cabinets usually falls onto the poor dog, and he's just, he doesn't know what's going on. But I I ended up talking to my sister. She's uh, a little bit more clairvoyant than I am, and she said that maybe I should tell the, the soldier that it was his time to go, that he was not welcome inside of my home, and that, you know, I just came to pay my respects. Um, I did say a little prayer for the soldier, and I told him, you know, I, you know, I'm sorry nobody came to see him, that nobody was there, that I was just trying to show my support, and it wasn't okay to kind of follow me around, and that I wasn't the one to follow. Things have kind of settled down within the last few months. There's still a lot of little bits here and there, but like I said in one of my other calls, I live in a house that's over 100 years old. 
you can tell the bricks are over 100 years old, the, you know, the foundation. And there's always just a little bit kind of a, a mysteriousness to the house. And my friend who lived there before me has never experienced anything. So I'm just thinking it's kind of me. All right, Derek, uh, me and my son love your podcast. It gets me through my hour commutes. And it helps us when we're on our road trips. So thanks. Keep up the good work. And I hope you enjoyed the story. Bye-bye. Thank you, Josie. You know what they say. No good deed goes unpunished. It's almost as if Josie and her family were being punished simply because of her kind gesture. But think about it this way. If the guy died and no one in his life came to say goodbye... Maybe he just was a terrible person to begin with. And like I always say, if you were a terrible person in life, you're probably going to be a terrible person in death. So now, Josie is a noisy, violent, and possibly pervy veteran ghost roaming her house. So perhaps the old adage should be updated to say, no good deed for the dead goes unpunished. Thanks again, Josie for sharing your story, and for being such a thoughtful person. And now for our final entry. We venture to the Peach State, where James has a new take on an old legend. Hi Derek, this is James. I'm calling from Georgia. Not sure exactly where to start. I've known for a while I was going to have to call and tell my story. I really love your podcast. Now that I'm semi-retired, I have a gig driving a few hours at night, and your podcast is perfect on these dark roads. I guess just to preface it a little, a little bit of background on me, premonition runs in my family, myself, and two of my sisters sometimes predict something that's going to happen. And I'm just putting that out there because I don't know if maybe I'm just a little connected to things or maybe susceptible to uh, some events. I've had a few really bizarre events. So anyway, what are the odds? My lucky number is seven. So tonight I'm listening to um, season seven, episode seven, where you're talking about all the bad luck you've been having. And then Adam calls in with his Robert the Doll story, which is exactly what I was going to call about. Somewhere around 2011, I was listening to a Coast to Coast show. The guest, and I, I can't remember his name, but he's an expert on Robert the Doll, to conduct the interview from the museum in the Florida Keys and spend the night there alone with the doll while he did the interview. The first thing he said was that he could not be responsible for anyone's bad luck, and he issued a warning that you don't have to be physically present to experience the curse. I kind of let that go in one ear and out the other. I mean, that's just great radio. Kind of takes it up a notch, I guess. So anyway, this was on a Sunday night, and I probably heard about half of the interview. Before I forget, a quick side note, I saw in the headlines a couple of years ago, the hurricane that came through the Keys wiped out that museum, 
the Robert Zadal was found stuck in the rafters. They think as the floodwaters rose, he drifted up to the top. Anyway, that Sunday night, I heard about half of the interview, I guess, and then I fell asleep. So Monday morning, I woke up, which was my day off. I'd only been awake just 30 seconds or so, and I noticed it's like I have this random toothache just out of nowhere. I hadn't been having any problems at all. My last checkup was fine. So it was just one of those kind of, you know, man, I hope this goes away. It wasn't a really bad toothache, just kind of a dull, out of the blue kind of ache. I'd only been awake a couple of minutes and my fiance called me. She was actually on the other side of the world in Asia. So we're 12 hours time difference there. It was her evening and my morning, and basically that was our routine. She would tell me how her day went, and I'm just telling her good morning. Anyway, we talked a while, and I mentioned that I had this random toothache at some point in the conversation. Anyway, the rest of that day went pretty much uneventful. I kept trying to decide whether I need to go on and see a dentist, if it was going to get worse, or if it was going to go away because I have worked the rest of the week. That evening, about the time it was really too late to see a dentist, it actually started getting worse. So before I went to bed, I called my fiance basically to tell her good morning. We'd only been talking a minute or two, and she blurts out, you jinxed me. I said, what do you mean? She says, I just woke up, and I have a toothache. So, you know, I kind of just chalked that off to a freaky coincidence. Then Tuesday morning, I go to work. I won't name names, but I work for the second largest package delivery company in the world, not the brown truck, the other one. We'll just leave it at that. Anyway, load my truck up, get out on my route, and about mid-morning, my scanner fails, which is pretty rare. So I tried to do a simple reboot, which normally will correct the problem, and it doesn't help at all. So then I do what's called a hard reset, and it still didn't fix the problem. Basically, my handheld electronic is now just a brick. What this means is I have to hand sheet all my deliveries for the rest of the day, which means I have to write down the address, zip code, time, all 16 digits of the tracking number for each package being delivered. So in other words, this just added a couple hours to my day. At the time, I was probably too ticked off to really think about the Robert the Doll curse. But anyway, Wednesday morning, back out on my route, I have a replacement scanner, and the same thing happens. I can't reboot it. I can't reset it. It's dead. Hand sheets again, and I get home two hours late. So Thursday morning... I'm telling the two co-workers that load their truck on either side of me what all's been going on. I gave them the short version of listening to the interview. So about 15 minutes later, they both get in a wreck with each other on the parking lot ground. At that point, I started taking the curse seriously and decided I would just keep my mouth shut and not say anything to anyone. My scanner continued to fail. Each morning, I'd get a replacement scanner, and about mid-morning, it would fail. Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, the whole week. Never seen anything like that before. 
So anyway, somewhere in the middle of the week, my toothache had gone away. And by the next day, so my fiance, and I normally don't really have day after day of bad luck. So having a week like that is just really unheard of to me. I had a total of 15 years in that job. And in 15 years, I've only had one scanner failure that I remember, possibly two. So I would think the odds of having the scanner fail every day for a week would be astronomical. There was a lot of bad luck to go around in this. My two co-workers that had the fender bender both lost their uh, safety bonus for that month. Whatever terminal manager was on duty probably took a hit on his safety bonus as well. And I guess about a week or two later, I emailed Coast to Coast. I just thought someone should maybe know what had happened. So anyway, I never got a response to my email, probably buried under a ton of email. I got to admit, I was kind of halfway relieved because I wasn't sure if I'd cause myself further bad luck by talking about it. So anyway, fast forward to a couple years later, a Facebook group that I'm a member of asked the members to post your strangest or oddest story. So I put this story about what had happened to me for a whole week. Less than 12 hours later, I'm coming home from work. I pull into my carport, and there's what looks like fog drifting along the floor there. And I was thinking that's strange because the roads were not foggy at all coming in that night. Uh, and I should explain... By then, I had changed jobs and was working at night. Anyway, I get out of my van, and the smell hits me. It's not fog, it's smoke. At the end of my carport is a breezeway leading to the patio. That's where it seemed to be coming from. So I go running in that direction. I get to the patio just in time to see the ground beside my swimming pool with sparks shooting out of it. And then a little four or five inch flame pops up. The wiring going to my pool pump had burned up. Now I've had that pool for a few years with no problem. So on the one hand, you could say sooner or later things wear out. But honestly, what are the odds that it does it within a few hours of me talking about what had happened to me from that curse? The other thing is, the pool pump kicks on a couple hours before I get home. If it had burned up earlier, I might not have even known for a couple of days. The way it happened, the smoke was perfect to draw me onto the patio so that it burst into flames right before my eyes. To me, that was more like a message. Anyway, hopefully, I won't have any repercussions from telling my story now. Surely enough time has passed, but I've been wrong about that once before. So if anything really outlandish happens, I'll expect it in the next 24 hours or less. If it does, I'll email you that I plan on this being the last time I talk about what happened to me with that curse. Thanks for listening. Thank you, sir. Cursed by listening to an interview. That's a new one by me. I tried to find some sources that support that claim, but I came up short. There might be stuff out there, it's just a difficult thing to search for. But, let's back up here. There are probably some listeners out there that have no idea who or what Robert the Doll actually is. 
But without a doubt, the most famous display at East Martello Museum is the mysterious Robert the Doll. The lifelike doll was Robert Eugene Otto's childhood companion and best friend, but legend has it, when Gene misbehaved, he would point at the doll and claim Robert did it. Gene went on to become a prominent Key West artist, and his home on Eaton Street became known as the artist's house. After Gene's death in 1974, stories of the doll's strange behavior became commonplace. Tenants heard footsteps in the attic room above them. Once it was put on exhibit, cameras and electronic devices malfunctioned in his presence, and soon, strange tales of paranormal experiences began to surface. That clip was found on the Visit Florida YouTube page. Now, Robert has seen better days. He's made of deteriorating cloth, stuffed with straw. He's about three feet tall and dressed as a sailor. And Robert calls a glass case in the East Martello Museum home. But James is right to fear him. You see, Robert has a knack for trouble. In fact, like most haunted objects, he too comes with a list of rules. Goody Estevez is a docent at the museum. Every morning she opens the museum and makes her presence known to the spirits who live there. When I come in the front door, I, I call out and I say, okay, I'm here and I'm gonna take over the fort and I'm gonna watch it for you. But one thing she won't do is touch him. Just his aura about him, it's hard to explain. I won't touch him. It is said Robert doesn't like to be touched. The first time I was here taking photos of Robert, and I thought I want to get one without his hat on his head. As soon as I leaned up to move the hat, you could feel it, it, it went from a simple looking doll to where, boom, you could see life come into it. You could see life come into his eyes, and you could tell he did not want me touching his hat. I moved the hat, I tried to take the photo, the camera would not work. Snap, snap, it's doing nothing. I set the camera down, put his hat back on his head. Camera went off four times. Problems with electronic equipment have become a common occurrence around Robert. Naturally, everyone who visits wants a photo of Robert, but that can prove a difficult task. Like the visitor from Idaho who took pictures around the museum. He claimed when he got back home that every single picture on the roll was of Robert. That clip comes courtesy of South Florida PBS. But there's one more rule that many fail to follow when visiting this decaying nightmare with eyes. You cannot take his photograph, or at least not without his permission. In fact, the wall behind Robert is plastered with apology letters from all over the world, from people suffering ill fate and begging Robert for forgiveness. Listen to a few of these letters that were sent in. Dear Robert, I visited you a little over a month ago and I never asked you if I could take your picture. And let me tell you, you've definitely made me regret that. The day after I returned home from Florida, a little less than a week after I visited you, I get my first speeding ticket, which ended up taking a month to get paid because they supposedly lost the ticket. And then I've been having problem after problem with my car. It's gotten to the point where it's not really even logical to keep fixing it. So basically what I'm trying to say is that I am sincerely sorry for not asking before I took your picture. That was very rude of me and you definitely have made me learn my lesson. 
I hope to visit you again soon, and trust me, I will for sure ask before taking your picture. Sincerely, Anonymous. Hey Robert, hope you're doing well, I just wanted to apologize if we upset you on Friday night. If so, I'm really, really sorry. We've had the worst bout of bad luck ever since we met you. On Saturday, our flights got delayed and they lost our luggage. The airline still has no idea where it is. I'm not sure if I came off as insincere when I saw you, but I thought you were the coolest doll ever, and I told everybody so. Hope you're staying cool in the summer heat, and please forgive me. Anonymous Dear Robert the Doll, I am so very sorry for taking your picture during my visit in the Keys. I have never been a superstitious person, but that has all changed since coming back from the Keys and taking your picture, after being warned not to. I have experienced more bad luck than ever. My house was struck by lightning three times, and I have had to replace very expensive items because of this. I have been very ill, including a staph infection in my lymph nodes. Our big screen TV recently went out and we had to pay to have that fixed. These are just a few of the things that have happened and I am hoping that by sending you this letter, my luck will somehow change. Please, please, please accept my apology. I promise that if I ever find myself in Key West again, I will be sure not to take your picture. So James, if you think it's Robert that hexed you, Maybe you should have written him instead of Coast to Coast. And I should add that I didn't hear back from James, so all must have gone okay on this retelling. Thanks again, James, for the entry. You know, one of these days I'm going to get down there to meet Mr. Robert. Maybe even grab a selfie. With his permission, of course. And that's going to do it for this episode. Monsters Among Us is written and produced by me, Derek Hayes. Additional support is provided by Sarah Carter Hayes and Addie Lloyd. All audio used in this production is done so under the protection of fair use. In the nightmarish soundtrack you hear in the background. Well, that's Code.ag Music and White Bat Audio. Thank you so much for listening, and until next week. Now, tonight's bonus entry was submitted by Alan in the state of Arizona. Hi, Derek. This is Alan in Arizona again. I just finished your episode 14 of season 8, and I have 
a owl story that didn't happen to me, but happened to my best friend's dad. This happened probably 87, 88. He worked in the Phelps Dodge Marinci Mine in southeast Arizona and lived in Pima, Arizona. It's a very long commute, playing the road a little bit, where you exit at Highway 70 to 191 North. There's a long stretch that's like five to six miles long. And where it comes into the base of the mountain is a fairly sharp turn leading uphill. Uh, they had just gotten off a night shift. It was early morning. Him and four other guys that carpooled with them were coming home. Just as they were rounding the bend, his headlights happened upon an owl standing in the middle of the road. And it was so quick that he, he barely had time to put his brakes on. He was probably running 60, 65 miles an hour. And all he saw was feathers hit the front of the car. Well, they get around the corner and the car starts to steam and he didn't want to burn the engine up. So he pulled over to check the damage. As they got out to uh, check the damage, they noticed the owl had hit dead square center of the grill of the car. And they'd hit it hard enough that it had uh, went through the plastic grill, hit the air conditioning evaporator, broke the mounts loose and pushed the radiator into the fan just enough to uh, cause the radiator to uh, leak. So one of the passengers was a Native American. I believe he was Apache. They're looking at the thing, and as they're looking at it, this head pops up in this gaping hole, and Al jumps up onto the bumper of the car and flies away. Well, that literally scares the shit out of all five of them. The Indian guy's like, no, I'm not ever going to ride in that car again, and started walking back to the intersection of 191 and the 70 and hitchhike home. I saw the damage myself because, in fact, uh, he brought the car to my dad's body repair shop and we changed out the uh, condenser or the evaporator and the uh, radiator and put a new grill in it. Thought that might go along with your owl stories and talk to you later. Have a good day. Bye. Thanks, Alan. Oddly enough, something very similar happened to me many years ago. I was still living in my tiny little hometown, about to leave for college when I hit a barn owl with the windshield of my truck. I was going about 45 miles an hour. It hit pretty hard. Another car going the opposite direction saw the events unfold and also pulled over. To my surprise, it was my former English teacher from high school. Well, we debated on what to do for the poor animal that was writhing in pain on the berm of the road. Having taken a close look at those talons, I knew right away that I would not be handling it with the gloves I had in the truck. So the teacher set off to fetch her colleague, a biology teacher also from the high school. But while she was gone, I carefully kept the now somewhat calm and clearly injured animal from rolling into the road, suffering further damage. When suddenly it stood upright, looked at me with a mean look, well, as mean as an owl can give, and then he just lifted his wings and simply disappeared into the night. Now, I made a point to stop at that location a few times the following few days to see if I could see it laying in the grass somewhere, but there was never a sign of it. And just like in Alan's entry, I thought for sure this owl was seriously injured, if not dying. Now, I doubt my experience in Ohio was in any way paranormal. But Alan's story, however, it took place in the desert southwest, 
We all know that's Lechuza territory. So maybe that infamous Latino legend can explain how this owl survived. But I'll tell you this much. Nothing from that area seems to surprise me anymore at this point. Thanks again, Alan, for sharing the call. And thank you for sticking around to the end of the show. Have a good night.